Hey everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Antler Up Podcast. I am Jeremy Dinsmore, and Dimitri and I have Tim Seesock on today's show. Tim is an avid and very successful hunter from Northeast Pennsylvania. Not only does Tim love chasing turkey and whitetail, but he has been going out west the past few years doing DIY style hunts. Tim has experience hunting both elk and mule deer. And in this episode, Tim shares stories and strategies for anyone looking to head out west and chase mule deer and elk. Tim breaks down his steps he takes when preparing a western hunt and can help any individual out, as well as stories from his mule deer and elk hunts this past season. We are excited to have him on today's show and look forward to having him on in the near future to talk about chasing whitetails and turkey. Thank you for listening and antler up. Before we get into the episode, we would like to thank our partners over at Big Sky Rentals. And for those of you that have never heard of Big Sky Rentals, this is a great opportunity for you to check out that are planning your next camping trip, hunting, or fishing trip. If there is a piece of equipment that you may need or don't currently own, then you are not out of luck. You will be able to rent premium gear for just the duration of your trip. So, for example, when you're going out on that first fresh waterfly fishing trip later this year and needing everything from your rod to your waders, Big Sky has you covered. Or if you're going out camping for that first time and you need a tent, you need a cooler, all that stuff, Big Sky has it for you. So again, if you want to check out for that fly fishing uh, package, it's $43 a day. If you want to check out the camping, it's just as low as minimum as $20 a day. So you will be set and ready to have fun in a great outdoors. So check them out at BigSkyRent.com and use code ANTLERUP10 to save some money. All right, everybody. So on the line today, we have Tim Seesock with us, um, Mr. Do It himself, Western Hunt style. He also does things here in Northeastern Pennsylvania, so homebody as well. Uh, so Tim, before we get started and get rolling with deep into some questions, uh, especially for for us that we have going out west, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Absolutely, and uh, thank you again for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Happy to have you on. <laughs> Well, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, a small town just outside of Hazleton, and grew up pretty much in coal country, more or less. So uh, hunting specific, uh, got into it when I was 12, uh, just like the normal Pennsylvania state law, how it used to be, and grew up pretty much hunting public land, coal company land, that sort of thing. So it was... I pretty I never had like private land, so I pretty much grew up the the typical Pennsylvania hunting way. That's what, and that's what's crazy. You know, we were just saying before we went uh, recording on air here how you and I were we grew grew up in the same exact town and probably crossed paths. I mean, you're only you're younger than me. You went to the high school that was right across the street, the the, the Catholic school for, from where I uh, graduated high school from. So this is. A really cool thing because we share a lot of the same, uh, basically the same area of where we were able growing up hunting. So that this is a this is really cool to, to hear some of the things and see how you branched out and you know went out west and started doing your own little thing. So this is awesome. We're we're we are really excited to have you on, man. I appreciate that. You know, after uh, after high school, I went on to college. Um, Basically went right through, got my master's degree, um, lived in Philly for a couple of years during that time. So hunting kind of got a backseat, but I used to travel home uh, pretty much almost every weekend throughout the season. Um, and since you can't hunt on Sundays in Pennsylvania, I was stuck with 
traveling home Friday night, hunting Saturday, and then going back on Sunday. Yeah. That was pretty much all I was left with for a couple of years. And then uh, after graduation, I got a, I'm a construction manager with an engineering firm now. So um, fortunately, they promote a, a work-life balance at work. So pretty much get your work done. And, uh, you know, if you, if you need to break out early, you can. So it allows me to have uh, probably more opportunity to be in the woods than than most people nowadays. So I'm that's pretty, really yeah, awesome. I'm that's pretty really, blessed. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of people have that opportunity, especially you don't realize it because when it gets towards the end of the season and that daylight starts creeping down and it's three 30 and you're like, man, I'm, I still have to get dressed. You know, if you're able to squeak out even that hour before that, that gives you extra prime time. So that's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed right now to, to have that opportunity. And like you said, I mean, if you're not in the woods by two o'clock and come November, then you're kind of missing out on the evening. So, and the, you know, a lot of people aren't getting off till four or five o'clock. So. Right. Right. So Tim, you know, the biggest thing that we want to talk to you about today is Western hunting. You know, a lot of us, you know, we, we dream about it. We think about it of, of getting out west and 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 doing those hunts but the biggest thing we want you to kind of tell the listeners today is you know how do you go about that you know we think about it we do research about it but you know we kind of left with the question of you know how do we even go about it so you know tell us a little bit how you even got into going out west in the beginning you know growing up we we've always had the great american outdoor show down in Harrisburg. It wasn't a far drive. I'd always, I'd always attend and you'd kind of just walked around the outfitting, uh, hall and you would just dream about these elk hunts. And I used to be like 15, 16 years old, picking up all these brochures, like, Oh, I'm going to hunt here. I'm going to hunt there. And they start looking at the prices and it's like, <laughs> this is kind of crazy. I'm never going to be able to do this. Um, and I started to understand what a guided hunt kind of walked you through too. And, it wasn't something I grew up doing. It wasn't something I was ever attracted to. You know, right. I always kind of grinded myself on public land and wondering if there was any opportunities for that out there. Um, I fortunately made a relationship with a guy out of uh, when I attended Temple University who was kind of in the same mindset, like, hey, man, I want to go out and hunt something else and go out west and pretty much just started digging into how you can do this. And this was back in 2008 or so. So like the hunting industry hasn't really exploded to what it has become now of all this information out there, how easy it is to hunt public land and do it yourself and just go out West and buy a license kind of thing. So we really spent a lot of hours trying to figure out how to do it. Right. Go hunt wasn't a thing yet. Maybe, or maybe it was, you know what I mean? But that's, uh, that's a tool that I know that you, you, you said in, in the past that you have, you, uh, that you use right now. Uh, that's really cool. I mean, you think about it as a college student, you're just digging your teeth in and just wanting to go out. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It was, uh, it wasn't until after we graduated that we said we were going to do this. And, uh, it was basically him and I, and then his father has been out there years ago i think through a guided hunt um so he joined us along with a friend but they were basically going to just kind of come for a for their own experience well and stick at the trailhead while we were just gonna hike in and and we were actually bow hunting elk in colorado was what we ended up doing uh 
really cool. So prior to all of Onyx's opportunities and Go Hunt and everything else, um, I was pretty much left with the DNR website and all the information that they threw out there and trying to cross-reference all kinds of harvest reports and population estimates and just all the information you could possibly take out. Forums were kind of a thing, but they weren't really really reliable because, again, you were dealing with the general public. So if someone said, oh, you're going to shoot a big bull here, there was 20 people saying there's no elk there, you know, that sort of thing. So. So I kind of just stuck to the to the literature that was available to the general public that was, you know, from a from a reliable source. <clears throat> yeah, and I think the the hardest thing about doing the Western hunt is, you know, you're only limited to a certain amount of time and and, and budget. So when you decide to make that kind of commitment to go out there, I mean, you want to do a lot of research to make put the best effort to be successful when you go out there. Exactly. Um, money was definitely uh, a driving factor because, again, I'm right out of college. I just started at the firm I was working for. Um, fortunately, I think I was living at home at the time, um, so I did have a little bit of money. But trying to, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, like I hunted whitetail prior to this out, out of state. I enjoyed like a lot of out of state hunts along the East Coast. But you're talking a hundred and some dollars compared to a $600 elk tag at this point. So trying to swallow your teeth to jump in the woods with a bow, not knowing anything for 600 bucks right off the top was kind of uh, overwhelming. And I think too, right now, I know a lot of people I've seen mentioned, because this is hopefully this upcoming year will be my first year heading out West uh, chasing either mule deer or going after a big elk. But you see, oh, year one is is that learning experience. And year two, you get a chance to learn it better. Now, maybe year three, you might get that opportunity, which, you know, and you hear people sometimes year one, you, you get lucky and everything like that. But for that money, for the price and for the time that you have to take off, that's where I have respect for anybody that does it. But, you know, for you that has had success in years past, you know, that's, that's phenomenal because it tests, it puts a test of not only what kind of learner you are, but what type of hunter you are and just that drive that you have. So that's really cool. Just because of, again, I've heard people just say, oh man, you're, you're one, you're just learning and you're two, you're, you're getting a little bit better and knowing the place of, you know, just a tad better, but then year three, you feel like you got to figure it out a little bit. And then, you know, obviously things could change, but you know, if you go in there that first time and, and have success, that's that's a really cool experience to have. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it all depends on what your level of success is and what you're trying to get out of the hunt. Right. Uh, whether it is you want to put something down and put something in the truck on the way home, or is it I want to hear a bugle? Is it I want to be able to have an opportunity? You know, whatever that level of success is. And I think going into it and now it's social media really playing a, a part in, in people's self-esteem that you need to kind of put that stuff aside and really understand what your kind of situation you're putting yourself in and what you're actually trying to get out of it. That's very well said because I know even for me right now, if you were to sit here and say, Jeremy, what would your goal be heading out West for your first year? I just really want to go through and experience everything and Take it all in, whether it be hearing my first bugle, that would be, 
I'm sure life changing. And that's every, what everybody says is when you hear that first bugle, it's, it's a life changing moment. And I want to experience that. So if I have that opportunity where I could just go out and experience, learn, have fun doing it, camp under the stars, could you go run up and down a mountain with my bow in my hand? That would be unbelievable. Yeah. And that, that's pretty much what I was looking for is what understanding how much I've enjoyed hunting my entire life. Like what is the experience like doing it in a completely different area that you've never stepped foot on, never seen before. And quite frankly, that is completely different than the East coast. So that was, that was pretty much what I was looking for is to take something I love to do and putting it to, in my mind at the time, the most extreme kind of situation that I, I can think of. Yeah. Now, once you were doing your research, Tim, now, obviously you were hunting public land when you went out for that first hunt, but how did you decide exactly, you know, what area in Colorado you were going to go for that first hunt? Uh, Colorado, the first time it was kind of, uh, it was kind of, uh, we, I don't know, really know how to put it, but we got pretty much got to a fork in the road. So my buddy and I did a lot of this research, settled in on a unit, um, started breaking up the unit as to what trailheads were going to be accessible. Cause again, we had my buddy's dad and his friend with them. So they were going to be camping at a trailhead, pretty much just camping with a little bit of hunting while we were going in the backcountry, And in my mind, I thought we were going to have a pretty good area. And when we pulled into Colorado, um, my buddy's father's friend ran into a buddy as we were getting our licenses and they got talking for probably close to an hour and have been hunting elk for the for a couple prior weeks. And we ended up taking all of our, all of our research that we just done got thrown out the window. Cause uh, he was <laughs> like, we're, we're pretty much going to go over here now. So it was, and it wasn't even that the same unit, same region, nothing. It was a completely different area. Um, so I, I remember leaving Bass Pro, talking to my buddy in the back of the truck, like, what are we going to do? And we just started downloading maps and started looking over the terrain, understanding that, you know, we're going to end up at this trailhead. Where do we want to go from there? Um, so a lot of the research in my first trip got thrown out the window and I had about six, seven hours to throw it all back together to figure out what we wanted to do. Um, you know, you, you, looking back, I, I wouldn't have traded it because of that experience, that hunt. Um, and you, you never know with what we have done the first time I would have put all that time and months into research could have had a terrible hunt and maybe would have lost interest in it, you know? Yeah. So, so now that you picked a place to hunt, you, you finally got to that location, kind of go through that first hunt with us. You know, what, what went well for you? What didn't go so well in your first hunt out West? <clears throat> well, you're never hunting elk, never, uh, being in Colorado in general and never, uh, being with anyone that has hunted elk before, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, was this going to be a place where elk were crawling all over? Or is this going to be a place where you're going to get one opportunity if you're lucky? Um, I do remember we hiked back in about four miles. We set camp up that night 
and we were going to start the hunt on the first day the next morning and got up in the morning and I headed out right before light. Um, I was heading to a ridge that I found on a, basically my GPS system that I was using, using cause Onyx didn't exist. And, uh, I came up over this ridge into a meadow and there were three cow elk that were feeding on the other side of the meadow and they were coming right to me. So the archery tag that I have is an either sex tag. I got, I'm 10, 15 minutes into my first ever elk hunt and I got three cows feeding into me right now. So in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is going to be great. There's elk everywhere. And those elk ended up feeding past me at 45, 50 yards, well within my comfort range. And I'm 15 minutes into my hunt and I got, I'm planned for like six days of hunting. So I ended up letting them go. And uh, looking back on it, I probably should have shot. Um, there were, I had opportunities after that. I actually, um, I actually had one experience that I, that totally changed the way I hunted elk. Um, on day four, I had a bull bugle down in this bottom and there's a lot of deadfall where we're hunting. So it was very hard to, to get around and cut distance. And I was able to do it probably to about a hundred yards and began calling to this elk, um, waited about an hour and ended up, uh, not seeing anything, not hearing him sound off or nothing. And I got up to basically move towards where I last heard him. And I remember, I'll never forget it. I remember there was deadfall, maybe about three feet, like waist high that I had to step over. And I remember putting my, putting my bow on the tree. I got over the tree and I turn around and there's this 300 inch bull at like 40 yards staring at me. And knowing that he just came in completely silent, um, kind of like a turkey would back in our woods, you know, later in the year. Right. So right. it was uh, it was an eye opener and watching that bull run away um, was kind of heartbreaking after grinding your teeth for four days. But uh, that, at that point, I was pretty much I was pretty much um, hooked on the western part of it, but also got everything out of that hunt I could I could ask for is hearing that hearing that bugle bugle and then basically get him to commit into the area. Um, but unfortunately probably moved a little too soon. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, that's a learning experiences. That's what we do. Now here's a, just a question just because of where, just the type of person that I am and where I live currently in my little neighborhood. How did you go about practicing calling for elk? Just because I know like this summer, if I end up buying like a, you know, what are the Phelps, uh, big tubes. I'll be out in my garage just bugling away, just driving everybody in this neighborhood crazy. How did you go about practicing for that? Man, well, I have to say I started making turkey diaphragm calls since I was younger than when I started bow hunting, uh, this bow hunting elk trip. So I was familiar with diaphragms. I, I like to say I, I know my way around them pretty good. So the transition from a turkey diaphragm to an elk diaphragm to get the calls out mm -hmm. were, were pretty seamless. Um, it was the bugling that was my biggest issue. And I actually went into this hunt without even a bugle tube because I knew 
that I didn't have the the practice or the skill set to bugle at that time. Um, so it's kind of like if you don't if you don't know how to use one of the tools in your bag, why are you going to carry it? Kind of thing. Right. Exactly. And that's I, I'll give it a shot. I'll try. But if if it sounds like a, I don't even know who knows what it'd be probably some type of dead animal. <laughs> but if I'll uh, I'll leave that one possibly back home as well and and see what we could do for for, for some other. Uh, tools to bring in my mind it was uh it was a means of if i'm going to do myself more harm than good then i pro- i should probably just leave this at home right and, right and and work on the skills that i do have whether it be still hunting um you know stalking or using a cow call and the cow call was what i brought this this first bull in with and uh you know you, you just got to it's just like turkey hunting back here. You got to find the right one to play ball. And uh, it might take you a lot longer. You might go through a couple screwed up setups, but you find the right one to play ball and you have your best opportunity. So now, Tim, now that you've been out there the first time, you came back, you you reassessed some things. Tell us a little bit of after that first experience, what you got into hunting out West after that. And, you know, tell us some stories of what animals and, and if you had any success after that. So after that, that was, that opened up like a whole new world. It was pretty much a deciding factor that from here on out, I'm trying to budget and plan for this every year. Um, so the first thing to do is trying to plan and budget financially and trying to look at how can I get this trip, these trips in as cheap as possible, understanding that I was planning to do um, over-the-counter, do-it-yourself type hunts. Because at this point, um, I wasn't at the point where I had points in because I didn't know if I even enjoyed this type of hunting. It was my first experience. So I knew even if I wanted to play the point game in the West that I'm still doing over-the-counter hunts for the next several years. Uh, so it was Gohan has been a, has been a factor the last few years, but prior to Gohan, it was more or less digging into DNR to see what opportunities were there. Cause there was really nothing there. And I still don't, not to put down Gohan, but I still don't rely on Gohan a hundred percent. Um, cause you're, you're using a third party to try and find information that you can, if you dig around and spend enough time to that, you can assess it and dissect it in your own kind of way. So going into, uh, I think the next year I hunted Colorado again with my buddy. And, uh, that was another elk bow hunt, either sex. I had that trip. I was drawn back three times and I never released an arrow. Um, there was an antler restriction out there on the bulls. They had to be at least four points on one side. Um, we ended up going back to the same area. Um, that was an area he wanted to go to. And I kind of looked at it as, okay, I have a little bit of experience there. I know where I've seen elk. I know where I've seen sign. Um, so at this point it's probably my best interest to return to that place. Um, so I didn't hunt exactly where, um, I would have the first year, but, um, it gave, it actually, I had a lot more opportunity the second year. Um, I do remember being down to the last day about an hour before dark. I 
had a bull coming into me. I could see his feet coming underneath these pine trees at about 20 yards. He was about to step out into this lane and I'm at full draw and he steps out and looks my way with giant spikes on his head. Jeez. Oh my. <laughs> so at that point I let down, I walked back to camp and I kind of laid down in, in the tent and I was like, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> like, I, I was mentally, mentally exhausted from it. And I was kind of mentally shut down from it because I just worked so hard and it took, it took me to actually not give up, but to go away from Colorado. My buddy still wanted to hunt there. Um, We had a couple other guys with us that wanted to go back there. And that was that next year. I was like, I really appreciate it, but I'm going to, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. I want to try something new. Um, So through my research, I actually just decided to go to Idaho um, Idaho was a state that had a lot of over-the-counter opportunity for non-residents, and they actually had uh, a series of units where you can rifle hunt in September for elk and mule deer, um, which I think in the lower 48, that's pretty much the only area you can do that in September with a rifle in your hand. I think so, yeah. So the the on the flip side of that, it's a those units are low population. Um, they do have some wolf impact on the population in there. Uh, and the terrain is just mountainous, mountainous, rugged, remote, and steep and ridiculous. Um, so I, I do believe that's a driving factor for the rifle tags. Um, right. The rifle, once I got out there, that rifle didn't really do you any good. <laughs> I mean the you know you're not you're not sitting on three four hundred yard meadows or shooting from one mountain to the other kind of thing so it was more or less uh completely completely wooded um which i felt at home kind of when i got there the first time you know it was i was used to growing up i I hunt big big wood whitetails in pennsylvania as big as they could get at least um but very mountainous, a lot of you hunt ridges and benches and, and hollows and that kind of thing. So I actually felt very comfortable when I got into Idaho because the terrain features were very, I found a similarity between those to, to Pennsylvania. So <clears throat> um, that first trip to Idaho, um, I had a elk tag and I had a mule deer tag and that year again i got i got thrown a wrench into my whole plan um my advice would be when you do decide to go out there for you know you're giving up a week's vacation or more um is you need to have backup plans so that year i guess it was 2017 had a lot of fires and to the point where the entire unit that i was planning to hunt was shut down Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you, you couldn't even get into it. And now I'm sitting here with a $400 elk tag and a mule deer tag for the area that I couldn't get into. Um, so it kind of threw the entire plans off because I was driving it, and now I have to drive to – I couldn't go straight to my trailhead. I had to drive to uh, the DNR and get my tag switched because they were actually giving you – any tag you wanted that was left over to trade in that tag because the unit was closed. Okay. Well, that's good. At least, I mean, you're driving all the way out there. That's yeah. good. So now 
the area that I had my tag in, I couldn't even get a tag for um, because that area was shut down. So I ended up getting a tag in another region. And again, I knew this about going into it. I knew it about maybe three weeks before I left. Um, I'm watching the weather and all you're getting is all these warnings about smoke inhalation and poor air quality and everything else. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, almost debated to take the bow because I knew there was some archery units that were open um, where if I could get a tag for the areas for the rifle or if it was just too dangerous to do it, I could have went to the southern part of the state and hunted with the bow. So the bow was actually in my car on the way out. And uh, fortunately pulled into, it was probably about plan D at this point um, on my list of areas that I've come up with over the research for the last nine months and found ourselves in uh, some good, some good areas, but it was more of a, more of a mule deer area than it was an elk area at the time. Um, it was a burn that was at this point, like four years old. So it was really hitting its prime and ended up taking but uh, an awesome mule deer that I don't know if I'll ever beat <laughs> at this point. Is that yeah, at the, least on an over the counter? Is that the picture where like you have the deer and it's up on like a, you could really tell like you're up high up on a mountain with with some of the dead wood up behind you? Yeah, yeah, that was that mule deer. Yeah, yeah, that he, was uh, big, big, big deer. He was a hundred and sixty five inch uh four by three. So if he would have split on his other beam, he probably would have been one eighty plus. So Wow. Yeah, he was for public land over the counter. Um I was floored um when I saw that buck. Yep. And uh, even more floored when I finally found him. <laughs> but, that's uh, awesome. Now that's your first that was your first mule deer too? That was my first mule deer and that was my first um western big game tag filled basically that's awesome now did you have go hunt for that hunt no i didn't i I actually solely relied on idaho's uh resources for that wow so and like i said that was that was plan d so i i i go through a lot of the numbers and i cross-reference a lot of a lot of the resources to try and put myself in personally i don't mind going to a location that's going to be uh less game if it's going to mean less hunters. So I would rather not deal with hunters and know that, you know, if I work my butt off that I'm going to give myself an opportunity at some point. Um, The last thing I want is to go to an area and work my butt off and then have some guy out there ruin it, you know? So that was, that was pretty much priority was where's the less hunting density compared to population estimates, harvest percentages, um and even terrain features where where's uh where can i get off the beaten path knowing that i'm going to be hiking and 99 percent of the other people are going to be on horseback i don't want to be by horse trails i don't want to be by roads i don't want to be by any of that just get me to a trailhead and get me on top of a ridge that i can i can traverse and get a couple miles back into some good uncharted territory was really my priority now, do you find it easier to find better locations to hunt with the Go Hunt app or something like Onyx as well? Uh, I use Onyx now quite a bit. Um, like I said, the Go Hunt part of it, 
I more or less at this point rely on my tags and my points to see, you know, what's my percentage on a certain unit kind of thing. Um, but when it comes down to to the features of the unit that I decide to go to, I usually refer to Onyx. They have a nice set of layers. They have a roadless layer. They have a couple other layers that will really um, cut a unit apart to, to for the other good areas to kind of point out at you. Right. Um, so I've used Onyx, but I also use a lot of uh, 3D Google. Um, so if you go into Google Maps, I deal a lot with the 3D um, features to be able to see what drainages look like, um, what kind of peaks there are, what's the access um, from the trailhead. If I know I got to go up 2,000, 2,500 feet in elevation over the course of a mile, I don't think many people are going to do it. And again, knowing that I'm going to go in the backcountry, all I got to do is get up that thing once and not come out until I'm satisfied. <laughs> like I'll, I'll deal with it, especially in the beginning of the hunt. So, right. So you start putting all these kind of pieces together and a unit kind of starts to break itself up and <clears throat> you can actually use even Google earth and go through, uh, different types of different times a year and start looking at trailheads. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to be in Idaho at a trailhead in September, well, what did it look like last year or two years ago or three years ago in September where how many cars were parked there, that sort of thing. So it, you can kind of take it as far as you want it to go. And I usually start planning my hunts for September this time of year. So you, I give myself ample time to try and get into a unit that deep is to try and plan out where people are just by looking at satellite imagery. Yeah. Now, you know, once you decide where you want to go and, and what location you're going to be hunting, what other sort of things do you do to prepare for your hunt? Uh, talk a little bit about maybe fitness level or preparing uh, some of your gear. A lot of people laughed at me when at the gym when you see you walking in with a big pack sticking off your back sitting on the treadmill. Uh, <laughs> so the the biggest thing for me, like I, I've played hockey all my life, so my legs are probably the the most in shape part of my body. Um, so I still condition the legs and the other part is what I need to do to carry weight. Um, I mean, if you have your legs, you pretty much have everything you need in the West to get around. Um, but also if you're putting anywhere between 40 to 70 pounds of gear on your back. And then again, if you put something down, now you're talking a hundred pounds on the way out. Uh, that's a lot of strain on your back and on your knees. So, so for the fitness, I don't do, I don't go too crazy. I just try and stay in shape and stay active during the off time. Um, I've never done any of the mountain fitness programs or any of that. I think a lot of it is psychs a lot of people out like, Oh, if I gotta be, if I gotta be Cam Haynes out there on the mountain, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. And the other thing is knowing your fitness is knowing that's another thing of knowing where you can hunt and where you really can't hunt. Um, I know I'm probably going, if I, if I go in solo, I'm probably going to be stuck to a, a general area. I'm not going to be able to traverse 12 miles and up and down 8,000 feet of elevation. So that comes into play too. Right. And then I've improved my gear over time. Um, I remember looking back at a photo my buddy took when we were first walking in on our first Colorado hunt. And it's actually pretty, uh, 
pretty hilarious to look how far the pack is off my back. <laughs> and over, over time, after I got kind of uh, into this whole idea that I wanted to do this every year, I started fine tuning my equipment as much as I could because that first year I didn't financially have the ability to just let me go out and buy all the gear I want and buy it top notch, not even knowing if I wanted to do this without ever trying it. Right. So um, I remember being out there in hunting boots that I've worn back here chasing Eastern whitetails. <laughs> and now I don't even put boots in the truck. All I use is a pair of Solomon trail hikers. That's it. Yeah. And, so it it's been a it's been a pro, a learning process from the gear standpoint, um, but now like my elk hunt from this past fall, I went I was planning to go in for seven days of hunting, and I was right around like forty one pounds or forty two pounds or something. So so it definitely has been proved over the last few years to at least fine-tune what i need what i don't need and then also you know it saves your body right what's uh just for you know for giggles what is that number one thing that you must have for when you head out like what's that one piece of gear that you cannot live without or even just for new hunters or or vets like what's one thing that you found that that you can't leave at home huh um that's tough man i actually I, I actually run a tent, so I run a – I'm actually going to have two answers to this. So okay. <laughs> when I when I first knew I was going out there in September, I bought I found this one-person Ozark Trail tent on Walmart's website for like 15 bucks, and I was like, I'm buying this. Right. And if it comes into a life-or-death situation, I don't care about leaving that wherever it was because it was 15 bucks, And it ha- that tent has been – it has never leaked. It packs down to be like four pounds. It's only like 18 inches long. It, it The only thing I don't like about it is that it's, it's, it's small. Right. Right. On these like little solo trips, I carry that tent everywhere. That's and awesome. it, it was $15 and it's a, you know, the name brand of it is generic and it's not one of those high end Nemo tents or whatever you want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on. But that thing has been with me. <laughs> for every hunt that I've had out there and it's been great. Um, aside from that, it's actually been my clothing setup. Um, so I invested in some, some high end gear and it's, it's been the biggest return on investment I had because I've been so comfortable. That's great. I mean, we, we talk about that too, you know, even just amongst us, whether on air or off air, where I, I've been wearing, this past year, more first light stuff. Dimitri still wears some Sitka things, and I ha- I've worn Sitka in the past as well. And I've had very, I've had ex- success with both of them, where I've liked certain pieces either more or th- the way things fit me. But even for me, sitting in a tree stand, because as a kid, that was always like my biggest thing. When you can't feel your feet or hands or any anymore, and you're just like numb to the bone, it was miserable. But like now since I've invested in that higher quality gear, I, I have yet to really experience anything where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I, you know, I'm miserable. Let me get out of here. You know, other than when it's, you know, downpouring and I don't have rain gear on other than that, I, it is a piece of gear and it's not just, I look at it as it's not clothing anymore. And I do look at it as this is, 
the next piece of gear that that we have to not necessarily have to have but if you want to be out longer and just you know hopefully find success then then that's what you got to do exactly um i've worked on my layering system over the last few years um i don't get too involved with it when i start looking at materials and all that sort of thing what i look at is from is what's the least amount of clothing i can get away with and be comfortable in and that's where the high performance gear really has been the answer to it mm-hmm. um i'm not a very good uh sponsorship photo opportunity because i don't i'm like a mix of everything like you said like i I can find certain pieces I like from all companies, right. um, not solely like Kuyu or solely Sika or First Lay or anything, but I will try pieces of gear and, and, and I don't care what, in my mind, a camel pattern to me is, is I don't care what it really looks like. Um, I don't, I don't particularly like to match cause I like my pattern to be broken up regardless but even this year I've hunted with solid colors because I knew what I was going to be comfortable in and I'm buying gear that I can use year round, not just for being out West, but even gear back here um, over the summer, that sort of thing. So like my, my gear has its own place at home and it doesn't get touched unless I'm going out the woods kind of thing. And, it, and it's been good ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, funny story about, about the tent, Tim, uh, when I was getting married and we were doing a wedding registry from Bed Bath & Beyond, there was a tent online. It was a cheap one. Um, and we put it on a registry and I actually got it as a wedding gift. So I am ready for going out West with my Bed Bath & Beyond tent. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got me beat, man. <laughs> Mine was from Walmart. <laughs> and you're going, honestly, as long, long as it works, right? Absolutely. I haven't even like put sealer on mine or nothing. And it has been relentless. And, and at the end of the day, all I want is a place to keep me dry and that's it. So I can't complain with it at all. And like I said, if I ever put myself in a situation where if I did have some type of spike camp or base camp and I can't go back, I'm not worried about this $800 tent laying in the woods. Yeah. Now that you've been out, Tim, uh, I've checked out your Instagram page. You've actually had quite a bit of success with, with elk hunting as well, right? Yeah, this year. Um, so I returned back to Idaho and a solo trip that I put, knowing that I was going to hunt for probably again seven days, I, uh, I decided to get an elk tag and a mule deer tag. And I planned to take a mule deer that wasn't any smaller than the one that I had or to shoot my first elk. And uh, I was fortunate enough to take my elk on the second day. That's awesome. And man, what a beauty that that elk was. I mean, I remember even this past fall seeing the, like that, the first day when you posted the picture of it, I was like jacked up for you. I'm like, we haven't even had the opportunity to, to talk or even meet, so to say. And I just was just ecstatic, ecstatic just for you, just because, you know, knowing that we're from the same area and everything like that. I just, uh, what a cool thing to, to see that. And, uh, man, you, that was a beautiful, beautiful bull. Uh, man, I really appreciate that, that I've been looking forward to that trip all year and doing it. Uh, I do like the solo aspect of it, but, and it's really just because I've never found the like-minded people that want to do the, the type of hunting that I enjoy. Um, so I was pretty much stuck to like, if I want to do this, I got to do it myself Right. and, and drove the whole trip. It was, uh, it was 41 driving hours from my doorstep to the trailhead. 
And uh, it, I've actually, now that um, I'm back and kind of reflected on the whole thing, I've actually spent more time in the car than I did hunting at that trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Now, you know, you've, we've talked about going out West, you know, for someone that is interested going, what would you say for that pro like the process going through, what is the, what, what do they have to look at? Is there budget, the scouting, the land? How, what would you say uh, is, you know, what the most important process to go through that? Uh, I, I think it, it depends on your own personal situation. Um, for me going these past few years, I've been looking at ways to try and keep my trips under $1,500. Mm-hmm. That's usually including tags. Um, so when you talk about a $1,500 elk, elk hunt, I don't, I don't think there's many people out there that, that would pass that up or even understand that the, it could be possible if you make the investments up front. Right. Um, so this year I did invest in a rooftop tent and that kind of saved me on my solo trip. I didn't spend a night in the hotel. I slept in on top of my truck every night at some type of piece of public land. Um, from getting into it, uh, looking back on my experiences now, outside of the budgeting, I would say the more time that you put into um, online resource, resources and any other resource that you have, whether it be a relative out that way or taking a trip in the summer to go out there or anything, because understand that you're walking into an area that you have no idea what it looks like. Um, you don't even know if it's accessible to a certain degree. Um, that was always my biggest concern is if I put all my eggs in one basket, I may get out there and like the year I had the fires not be able to even step foot into it. Right. Um, or you could see that, you know, there was some type of logging operation going on and now the area you plan to hunt has D nines everywhere. Um, so that was the, I think that's the biggest challenge is trying to place yourself in an area that you want to hunt that you physically can't step on. And I think that's the biggest challenge as well. Um, cause again, you're not, you're not being able to follow the herds. It's not like, you know, back home here, I like to go out right before dark and try and see if there's a good buck feeding across an area or something, knowing that I'm going to catch them here. You can't, you can't do that from Pennsylvania out and, and do it out in Idaho. So I think that has been the biggest challenge is trying to understand not only where you can hunt or where you want to hunt based on your information, but you really have to understand uh, human pressure and also what the animal that you're chasing really wants to do in his, in their mind, like trying to understand what an elk does and why they do it, or trying to understand what a muley does and why they do it. And then, Again, cross-referencing that to your human pressure, your population densities, and all that sort of thing, your te- your weather. I start watching the weather a couple months beforehand, um, trying to understand what kind of summer that western state is going to have. Okay. Is there a lot of water? Is there not going to be a lot of water? Has it been extremely hot and dry with no water? Then are these animals going to be down low are they going to be up high is there a lot of vegetation that's going to be up high so elevation has a lot to do with it and a lot of that's based on weather um so i've been starting to watch weather trends too a couple months prior to going out there so that's a really good point because again you don't live there 
so you don't wake up to the weather every day and understand what type of year is happening. And it could be, it could be somewhat regional. Like if you look at my weather app, I have at least two dozen areas in the West that either I want to hunt or I've been hunting to try and keep tabs on weather to see what kind of year that that place is having. I'll bet you too, that's probably a really big underlooked situation that like most hunters don't even really think about before they head out there. I mean, I mean, if you, again, if you, if you have a real dry summer, not a lot of rain, are you going to put yourself on the top of a, of a ridge at 9,000 feet? You might, because if you didn't watch it, you're going to do yourself some harm and put yourself up there and nothing's going to be living up there because there's no vegetation. Right. So, um, in my eyes, that that's a pretty important aspect. Absolutely. Now, what would you say would be like the most common mistake most new hunters that head out west face, or even even uh, your normal every guy that goes out west a couple of the first couple of years? Like, what, what's the most common mistake do you see? Uh, or even that you've made? And now you know oh, I better not do that again. Hmm. Uh. Again, I can't speak for everyone, but my most common mistake or even what I would see that people do would be um, to not kind of do your homework. Um, I think you talk perception about Colorado. Colorado talks about, oh, they have the biggest population of elk and everything else. And I think a lot of people get in the mindset that if they go into this unit, they're going to have a good chance at it. I think, I think the biggest mistake is the lack of attention given to the animal that they're chasing um, to try and really understand what that, um, what that, what that elk or that mule deer or whatever you're chasing wants to do and wants to be where they are. I mean, I've heard Randy Newberg talk about are the elk where they are, are they, where you find, are the elk where you find them or do you find them where they are? And it's kind of a, an oxymoron like you can't answer that question right right um but in my mind um i like to find them where they are because i like to feel like i've done my research and knowing that those animals should be where they are based on my experience or or my skill set or whatever you want to call it right and one more question i have regarding that too tim is because someone asked me about uh, an individual going out West and when they have success, what happens next? You know, what is like, obviously, uh, I know that, yeah, you have your pack on you. I know for, from, even from one of your posts saying how many trips you had to make with your elk, what, when you walk up to that bull that you just put a beautiful shot on, what is your next couple steps to get him down the mountain? What goes into that? And then even bringing him home, what, what, goes into that process uh that's a perfectly timed question after the year i had so (laughs) (laughs) um let's let's take my elk hunt in general um i think if you're planning to go out there and you're planning to break this animal down uh, you know whether it be your own or your friends or something somebody needs to have and it's kind of another tool in the in the arsenal is you need to have some sense of taxidermy skills if you want to preserve that trophy um going back to your last question i think a lot of people go out there maybe never never field dressing a deer maybe never uh caping out a buck that they want to take to the taxidermist and i think 
you have to understand that if you put an animal like this down five miles away, you should understand and know the the anatomy and this and have the skill set to be able to preserve your your trophy um, for two plus days that you might not have this thing on ice or you might not have this um, prepared properly to get it back, whether it be to a, to a local taxidermist or to somebody back home or you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the cape. You're going to lose something. So I think that's a big aspect of it. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, my, my experience this year with the elk was overwhelming. Um, I've never been standing next to a, 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 an elk that was just taken by any hunter. So mm-hmm. actually seeing the size of this bull laying next to me and knowing I was out there on my own, like, what do I do next kind of thing? Um, was very overwhelming. And, uh, I actually put myself in a very, um, piss poor situation. Um, so the elk that I ended up taking, I took him first thing in the morning. I called this bull in. Um, we kind of, he kind of caught my wind or saw me on basically on this bench as he came running around this bench. Um, so I did get a shot at him when he, when he busted. And, uh, after I walked up to him, this was seven in the morning on a South facing slope that was on a ridge that has been burned from a wildfire seven years ago. So it's pretty wide open to the elements. Um, so now I have this six, 700 pound animal laying there. He's about to bake in the sun for the next 12 hours what do I do? Um, so outside of taking the the few pictures that I did, I knew my immediate, um, response was to basically get this, get this bull broken down and get it deboned as quick as I could. I didn't really have the opportunity to just quarter him out and let it cool down. Um, I couldn't really do anything. So, uh, I immediately started breaking the bull down, basically, uh, deboning him, uh, right there on the ground, laying it out, trying to get a cool down, you know, I used a, I had like a lay down tarp that I was able to use. And then I also used my rain fly from my tent to kind of use some shade. So after I got the bull broken down, I basically started huffing meat down. I'd say probably close to seven, 800 feet in elevation down to a Creek and get that meat stored down by a Creek. That's, um, that's crazy. So it was, it was five trips down to that Creek. And then <laughs> by that time it was probably uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon. And unfortunately the Creek that all this meat was by was actually the opposite way of the direction I had to go. So I actually moved all this meat almost a mile away from uh, a mile further in than what I needed to be. Uh, so my plan after this point was go back down to the creek and start huffing the meat. Now that the sun has passed over this ridge, I was basically huffing it back up to where I camped, which was, again, probably over a mile from where the meat was stored. So so I started huffing the meat all the way back up, and I still had another trip down there, and I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, physically, I was... I was drained from going since this, that morning. And, uh, my biggest mistake there was taking the time out to eat. I didn't eat. All I did was drink. Um, 
So I was pretty wiped. And I was five, I was close to five, I was over five miles in at this point. Um, so I actually made the executive decision in order to preserve the meat that I was going to take everything I could and just hike out. Um, so I got back to my truck late that night and it was two hours to town. Um, so I had all the meat hanging. I had three quarters up by my where my tent was on top of the ridge and I still had a quarter down in, uh, down in the Creek. So I drove all the way back to town. I got back at like almost midnight and I just started calling anybody that I could find online guides, outfitters. I actually saw a guy on the way out and he had horses with him. And I was like, I, I stopped him and I was asking him if he was a packer and he's like, I'm sorry, I'd help you, but I got to, my kid and I, we have to go back to school and work tomorrow. So, geez. So, of course, none of my phone calls were answered at like 1130 for this Pennsylvania guy asking this someone to help get some meat out the woods. <laughs> but I did get one person and they gave me a, a, a half answer of we'll get someone to call you back in the morning. So that was kind of a, a rough. I didn't sleep at all because I didn't know, you know ethically should I be up there trying to save this meat and and coming out the woods or should I just rest and and wait to hear from someone in the morning um part of me wanted to just go back up on the mountain and just start hiking meat right and I knew physically that I was putting myself in a situation that I didn't want to be in just because of the the lack of food that I had in me, um, how tired I was and the amount, you know, the amount of terrain that I essentially had to cover. So the next morning I got up and actually got a phone call and, uh, I sent over some GPS coordinates and the guy called me back and said, you know, we can help you. We'll give you, we'll, we'll bring up two mules for you. Um, so the only issue was where I was accessing the trailhead, they couldn't get to, um, because again, like I said before, I look for places where there's no horse trails, right, no roads, right. no everything. So it kind of hurt me a little bit. But um, the closest trailhead that they were uh, able to get to would be a little over seven miles and 2,500 feet in elevation gain to the bull. So, so we didn't actually get out to that trailhead until later in the afternoon. Um, Huffed it all the way up this 2,500 feet, got to the bull right at dark, and I still had another quarter that was another mile away yet each way. So I hiked that mile all the way back down, picked up by the creek, hiked it up. We were able to load up the mules, and uh, I got out around, I think I got back to their place at like 3 a.m. So it was kind of shame on me a little bit. Um you know, my first priority was make sure that that meat does not go bad. Right. Um, looking back on it, I physically don't think I would have, I would have been able to um, traverse that meat back to my truck in without it, at least some portion of it spoiling. Okay. Knowing that I would probably have at least two days to move meat by myself. Gotcha. Um, so I, where I could have saved my time and probably prolonged my hunt, um, would have been to go in 
with that information ahead of time and called ahead of time and said, hey, I'm going to hunt this area. Um, do you provide packing services where if I get a bull down that you can help me out? Exchange numbers and then using my in-reach device, I could have reached out and sent some coordinates and been like, hey, I got a bull down. Send somebody up and I could have just focused on keeping the meat cool. Right. Until they got there instead of having to go out, drive back to town, come back in. So. So that was another learning experience for me. Um, you know, when you're on your way out there, I was just like, yeah, if I shoot an elk, I'll just I'll just get it out myself. It, I'll let it take as long as I have to. And unfortunately, the weather didn't allow for it because um, I was that weather at that week was still getting up into the 70s in the daytime and meat won't last long in 70 degree weather. Right. So. So that was my learning experience through the whole trip. But going back to your original question that I've went off the trail on, like, I, I really think you have to understand um, that there's opportunities out there if you are solo or if you're, even if you're with two people and, you know, Ichi has put a bull down or, you know, you put a bull down a day after you put the first bull down that, you know, go in with a plan of, of how you're going to get that meat out. Cause that's in my mind, that's number one priority. If you're going to take that animal, you're going to use that animal to the furthest extent you can. Exactly. Yep. No, that's, that's awesome, man. And thank you for sharing that. That's really good information just because, you know, even I think I know what you have to do, but I mean, even just the contacting, like you said, someone beforehand, just to let them know and just possibly get somebody to help you out if you are going solo or, you know, if you do have other people going with you, you have a plan intact. So that's really, really great information. You know, to wrap things up too, Tim, now, what are your goals going into for next year? Because I, I, I know we didn't even touch upon anything whitetail related, and that's why we're going to save another day here coming up in another couple of weeks for, for another episode of that, just because I, I obviously that's something that our passion is, but we really want to get really into that of how you hunt and, and go for that. So long you know being around the bush what would be your 2020 goal for your out west hunt for next year oh man i didn't i didn't get that far (laughs) (laughs) right so i want to say that i want to do something different um but i know we've talked to and you know i i've i'd like to uh i think my family would appreciate if i didn't if I, i don't keep riding solo on all these trips too because uh, you do add into a, a higher risk factor for for everything, um, but I definitely do want to go again. Um, I know I've sent texts to my family after I got this elk down saying I'm not doing this next year because <laughs> I was just completely floored mentally, physically, emotionally, and everything else. And I felt like you know after shooting that bull and the mule deer and everything else out there that I. I feel like I've made some accomplishments that I was proud of, but absolutely. After you get back, you get, you kind of start thinking like, I can't wait to go again. And, uh, I, I do want to, uh, do something. I haven't really narrowed down what, what I want to do. Even like weapon wise, do I want to go back out with a rifle? Do I want to do the bow? Maybe a muzzleloader hunt. Um, and even looking at different areas. Now I do know that Idaho is non-resident. Uh, opportunities are going to be very limited uh, starting next year. So this might be the last time to hunt Idaho for a while. Um, So does it make sense to go there or is it time to, uh, you know, go somewhere else? Um, 
I, re- I really don't know what. I'm kind of leaving it open. I'm kind of been, I've still been doing research. Um, I just don't know, I, you know, to me, I have a couple points in Wyoming and Utah and Colorado. Um, so I don't know. Do I just let them uh, soak for a little bit and build up or, or is it time to try and apply for a, for a limited entry tag? So I don't know. I really don't know. Um, when it, when we talk whitetail, um, I try and go into every whitetail uh, season with a specific goal, um, trying to some, do something new, whether it be, you know, harvest a specific buck or harvest it in a certain way, whether it be on the ground or different set of equipment or something. So right. um, next year, I definitely... Um, I definitely like identified an area that I want to take a buck in. Um, so I'm actually going to do some more investment on some additional cameras this year, I think, because uh, I'm more of a trails person. I, I don't do, uh, I usually focus and we'll talk about this in the next one, but uh usually focus on trails when I hunt whitetail and that's about it. Okay. And uh, I do want to pretty much focus on using uh using cameras more a little bit next year and, and try and figure out what my next goal for whitetail is next year. But um, another thing that I've been tossing back and forth, cause this, this downtime between like January till Turkey season sucks. So I'm really pushing the opportunity to go somewhere out West for a, an archery late season mule deer in the rut, like an Arizona hunt or a New Mexico hunt. That'd be really cool. So, yeah, I, I know seeing the guys from the hunting public and other people go out to Arizona right now hunting coos deer and everything. That just looks so much fun. Yeah, for some reason coos don't do it for me. But yeah, and I ever since I've hunted mule deer, I'm like hooked on mule deer. Yeah, that's what everybody says. It. It's like one, it's one or the other, and you get hooked on it, and it's it could be the mule deer. So that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, you know, to wrap things up, where can more people? Uh, find information about you, you know, whether it be your social media page or anything like that. Yeah, pretty much. I'm only really active on, uh, on Instagram. Um, so I get in, I get in situation, like not situations, but I get in feelings where I just, I get off that for a while too. So I'm kind of, I post for a few days and then I, then I go ghost for like a month. So, um, but you can find me at Eastern Backcountry, uh, all one word at, on Instagram. Or uh, just pull up my name; it should pop up too. It's a public, uh, it's a public account, so I'll share anything. What is it's really just hunting life too? So, yep, awesome, man. Well, hey, we are excited. Thank you for sharing all that information about going out west. And like I mentioned earlier, we will be having another episode for sure in the near future, talking all white tails, just because again, that's something that we are very passionate about, and we can't wait to just see how you attack them and, and all the success that you've had, especially again this year on a nice big public land buck. So uh, we'll, we'll have that coming up to you in a couple of weeks. So Tim, is there anything else you want to cover before we get off, man? No, man, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's good talking to you guys. Um, hopefully we'll start talking West. Awesome. All right. Sounds good. Tim. Sounds good, buddy. All right. All thank right. you so much, Tim. Take care. All right. You too, bud. Bye. See ya. And that wraps everything up for this episode. Thank you for listening. And we are really excited to have Tim on again here in the future to talk about whitetails and chasing turkey this spring here in Pennsylvania. And be on the lookout. We will be having brand new hats on our website coming from Shea Butler from Shea Butler Knives. 
So check them out over on Instagram. Uh, their hats are going to be pretty sweet. They got a new leather patch coming on them. We got two styles coming in. So be on the lookout for that. And before we head out, I just again want to thank our partners from Big Sky Rent Rentals and as well as America's Best Bowstrings and 1824 Funk. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention from last uh, episode from the ATA show was that the America's Best Bowstrings, if you haven't uh, noticed, are going to have a one and a two year warranty. Uh, depending on which uh, model of strings that you get uh, so you know check those out again another great company just got even better so love that we're being a part of that as well as uh, with 1824 funk some new things going to be coming out in the future uh, so again thank you for listening everybody till next time and we're up <laughs>